Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's kind of loud. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, There are ways in which we can relate to every single church that is spoken of in Scripture, Ephesus, Colossae, all the ones in Revelation. Um, However, I think that the American church, as it stands now in the West, Uh, is very much like the church at Corinth. Corinth was a church that uh, was rampant with sin. It was a church full of divisions formed around personalities or preachers. Uh, Its members were guilty of sexual sin, not even named among the pagans. Uh, Members were actually suing other members in the church. They're getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. Their worship services were chaotic and disorderly. And worse yet... uh, church discipline was not being practiced. They actually celebrated that uh, their tolerance of sin, right? They they thought it was something worth bragging about. And the whole thing was was a mess. Yet it was truly a church of God. And though we have all these tendencies represented among our churches, these, these different sins we see in Corinth, our prime similarity, I think, is found in a different attribute. Uh, namely, both Americans and Corinthians despise the foolishness of the message of the cross. That's what we have in common. That's the fountainhead of all these problems. In chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks foolishness, or Gentiles, excuse me, Um, but to those who are uh, the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the the Corinthians were mostly Greek. They were certainly Greek in culture and Greeks are known for their love of philosophy, right? Philosophy means love of wisdom. Uh, They were all about clever sayings and complicated systems of thoughts. Uh, and from that, that love rose the, the sophists that Andrew talked about this morning. The sermon's going to be pretty close to the sermon. It's how it played out. Um, 
Uh, these were men that were well-studied and very clever with their word. They, they would get paid to go around and, and give speeches. Uh, they were powerful, and they were very persuasive uh, speakers. But uh, rarely, rarely did they say anything of, um, that had real content to it. Right? They're, they're, you know, Socrates, Plato, these guys aren't at that level. There's, those guys observe some true things, but that's still human wisdom ultimately. These guys were more formed than substance. Uh, but at the core of their message really was nothing but following human wisdom. And even that was one of the lower forms of human wisdom. And this is America. America's like this too. We love sophistry. We like human wisdom. Uh, go check the bestseller list. Uh, look at the nonfiction in particular. I looked at the top 100 this afternoon. I was just curious what was on there. And uh, you'll, you'll see. Look at... Uh, all the diets that will change your life, all the exercises that will change your life. Look at all the 10 rules or 5 rules or 100 rules or 48 laws of power, like all these different things that are going to change your life, all this wisdom. Um, so it was loaded with self-improvement books, which are loaded with sophistry. And, uh, and you're, are you guys familiar with TED Talks? Do you know what TED Talks are? Right? Um, you know, where a bunch of Steve Jobs wannabes come out. Uh, they're the most potent form, in my opinion, of, of modern sophists or sophists. Uh, several years back, a guy named Benjamin Braddon wrote a critique of TED Talks. Uh, he said, TED, of course, stands for technology, entertainment, design, and I'll talk a bit about all three. I think TED actually stands for Middle Brow Mega Church Infertainment. The key rhetorical device for TED Talks is a combination of epiphany and personal testimony an epiphemony, if you like, through which the speaker shares a personal journey of insight and a realization, its triumphs and tribulations. What is it that the TED audience hopes to get from this? A vicarious insight, a fleeting moment of wonder, an inkling that maybe it's all going to work out after all, a spiritual buzz. And there's a hilarious satire of a TED Talk where a guy comes out, he does this sort of six-minute TED Talk, and he, he says nothing of consequence at all. He just describes and acts out a TED Talk. And, uh, and here's his opening. I think it's helpful. I'll do my best, okay? Um, uh, do you hear that? That's nothing, which I, as a speaker at today's conference, have for you all. I have nothing. Nada, zip, zilch, zippo. Nothing smart. Nothing inspirational, nothing even remotely researched at all. I have absolutely nothing to say whatsoever. And yet, through my manner of speaking, I will make it seem like I do. Like what I'm saying is brilliant. And maybe, just maybe, you'll feel like you've learned something. Now, I'm going to get started with uh, the opening. I'm going to make a lot of hand gestures. I'm going to do this with... uh, my, my right hand, and then I'm going to do this with my left hand. I'm going to adjust my glasses, and I'm going to ask you a question. By show of hands, how many of you have been asked a question lately? Right, so he goes on. It's linked on my Facebook page. It's worth watching. And it's, it's hilarious, and it's a revealing critique of our love of the wisdom of the world, which is just foolishness, Right? If it sounds good, if it creates a spiritual buzz, well, then we're all about it. And that culture is in the church. It's in our pulpits. It was at Corinth, and it's in America. 
Now let's look back at our text for a moment. Uh, In this passage, we have Paul explaining his message and method, uh, which was very much at odds with the the Corinthians' expectation. And uh, so verse 1, when I came to you, Paul arrived in Corinth. Uh, You can find in Acts chapter 18. Uh, He he met a couple Christians uh, there, Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers like them, and and uh, he starts to minister there, and he stays there longer than just about anywhere else, a year and a half. And uh, he says, I did not come with superiority of speech, were of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So he says, look, I, I didn't come as a philosopher, as a, as a salesman, uh, and he certainly was a sophist. The reason he mentions this is to emphasize the power of God's word. It wasn't Paul's method of delivery that was powerful. It was uh, the message that was powerful, the testimony of God. Paul came as a witness proclaiming to them the testimony of God. So what's meant by the testimony of God here is God's revelation, the gospel, and and the word of God. That's what bore fruit. That's what was powerful. Not his clever illustrations, his ability to um, alliterate, his rhetorical ability. His trust was in the word of God. Paul says, look, I know you're used to these guys that are very animated and very persuasive and superior in speech and, and, uh, and all that. Uh, that's not how I came to you. Um, and here he's not, he's not actually, I think he's simply describing where the fruit came from. He's not saying, look, you, you have to be simple in your presentation of Scripture. He's saying, I was simple, and look at the fruit it bared. Like the fruit came from God's word. It clearly wasn't from uh, my, my speaking ability. It was from God's word. So he trusts God's word. And you have to ask yourself, do you trust God's word? Um, I've been at churches where I think there's no way that person's staying in that congregation, given their commitments, right? Like some left-wing feminist or some, like, radical Arminian that just hates Calvinism. But then I watch God's work, God's word work on them. And these people stay, and God changes them and matures them like he does in all of us through his word. And I think, you know, I don't have faith in God's word. I don't believe God's word is powerful. Well, let me give you seven metaphors or seven reasons you should trust God's word real quick. First, God's word is a sword that pierces. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is a mirror that reveals. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. James 1.23. We just read that. Uh, it's a seed. The word of God is a seed that re- reproduces. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. God's word is growing in you like a seed. God's word is a milk that nourishes like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. First Peter 2, 2. The word of God is a lamp that shines. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. The word of God is a fire that consumes Jeremiah 23, 29, he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the, word, the Lord, 
it's also a hammer that shatters. And like a hammer which shatters a rock, again, Jeremiah 23, 29. So it's a sword, it's a mirror, it's a seed, a lamp, a fire, a hammer. You can find plenty of other metaphors in Scripture. The Word of God is powerful. You should trust it. God works through His Word. And Paul had a trust in it, and he's commending the Corinthians to trust it. There's a, um, there's a quote that's attributed to Spurgeon. It's often messed up. Uh, but it's one of those famous quotes you just have to say every once in a while, like the C.S. Lewis quote about the sun. Well, this is one of those quotes from Spurgeon. The word of God can take care of itself, and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion? They have, a cage, uh, they have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect that lion? What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself uh, of all of its adversaries. Let it go. Preach the word of God. If you don't know what to tell someone, read them the Bible. Right? If you think you know some, uh, what to tell someone, that better be reading them the Bible. Like, learn to quote scripture p- to people. That God will work through it. That's why you should be studying God's word throughout the week. Memorizing God's word. Hiding it in your heart. Don't fall back on folksy sayings in the wisdom of men. This is a great quote from Spurgeon. Scripture uh, is powerful. I was talking to someone very close to Answers in Genesis some years ago. And, um, and I was explaining to them that uh, we don't need, they, they love to cite this, this guy got swallowed by some big fish, like in the 1800s. I forget what type of fish it was. And like, see, Jonah's believable. Like, Jonah's in scripture. Jesus said he was in the belly of, of, of the, the sea monster. That's what Jesus says. That, that's how I know. I don't need some example of some British guy that uh, fell over the side of a boat and had a terrible morning, right? I don't need that. Um, well, they said to me, what if believers don't believe it? Well, it doesn't matter. Or unbelievers don't believe it. It doesn't matter. But God's word is a sword. If a schizophrenic, if I stab him, he says, that's not a sword. Trust me, he believes. Preach God's word. They will, it will respond, they will respond to it. Everyone always responds to God's word. It either hardens their heart or it melts it. And that's in the hands of the Lord. All you do is preach, right? You have to trust the Lord. Uh, so, yeah, trust God's word. Just preach it. Let the lion loose. In verse 2, and this is a very abused uh, verse in recent years. Paul says, For I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and, and him crucified. And I've heard this preached. It often serves as a proof text uh, that every sermon should really only be about Christ's uh, atoning work in particular. Right? Christ and him crucified. That's what you should preach in every sermon. And it's, it's a sermon version, a homiletical version of red letter Christianity. You know what that is? Right? I don't believe all the Bible, but the red letters, man, I believe them. Well, the red letters often are Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. Do you believe Deuteronomy? Um, it's just, uh, 
it's just weird and, and uh, gruel-thin theology, right? Uh, but you'll hear, you'll hear people uh, say, look, I, I heard that sermon, and I just didn't feel like it was Christ-centered or cross-centered. And then they'll, they'll cite this. And that, that's not what this, verse, what this verse is saying. See, the Greeks found the crucifixion of Christ repulsive. The Jews were stumbled by it. You know, uh, everything about the cross is offensive. Uh, you're terrible. You are terrible, terrible people. Really, you've broken all the Ten Commandments in millions of ways. Uh, God offers you goodness and you spit in his face. You all deserve hell. Now, I'm part of that you, but I like to make it personal so you feel it a little bit. Um, the cross says that to you. The cross is so bad that this was the only way you could be made right with God. And that's offensive to people. It's also offensive that God came as a man and God was killed by men. That's, uh, the Muslims uh, have a, a real trouble with that. Um, so the, the cross is an offense. And we have to bring it up at some point when, when we talk to people. And, uh, and what Paul was saying, and this is, how, this is Calvin's translation. He says, Calvin, Calvin says what Paul's saying is, no kind of knowledge was in my view of so much importance as to lead me to desire anything but Christ crucified though he was in other words look i know you guys are stumbled by the cross stumbled by jesus because he was crucified but i'm not ashamed of it it is the power of god it is how we are being redeemed and made right with god so i will preach christ matter of fact i determine i make a choice not to feed you human wisdom as like some bridge to the gospel I'm going to preach Christ. Christ is going to be the sum, the, the, the thesis, the main point of the totality of his preaching, even though you find the crucifixion offensive. That's what he's saying. That's what it's about. And when you hear people use this as a proof text to, to only preach uh, a very truncated version of the atonement, uh, you have to wonder... You know, these guys that make so much of Christ-centered preaching, why do they talk so little about the lordship of Christ? Uh, Why so little on his offices of prophet, priest, and king? Why don't they talk about how the gospel of Jesus increasingly establishes the law of God in the life of believers? That's pretty Christ-centered. That's what he came to do. And it's because it doesn't resonate with many churchgoers. The reason it doesn't resonate is because of Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow the crucified Savior, the once crucified Savior, is to you, for you yourself to die and take up your cross. And uh, that's not how you grow a big church. That's not how you keep that tithe coming in. Uh, or so it appears, right? It actually is how you build uh, churches. But look, we should be preaching on the atonement. That should come up. I, I, I don't know a Sunday that the atonement hasn't come up at this church. It comes up all the time. It's just not always uh, the solitary point of the sermon. We should talk to people about propitiation, that on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. God is not angry at you anymore. Because of Jesus, he loves you. God loves you. We should never be ashamed to say that. Can't let those people steal the love of God from us, but the ones that cheapen it and water it down. God does love his children.
because of what Christ did on the cross. And uh, we need to tell people you've been reconciled. Because of the atonement, we've been restored to a right relationship with God. God is now our Father. He's not our, we're not His enemies any longer. Uh, he cares for us. We should talk about redemption. We're, we've been purchased, purchased back from slavery. We're not enslaved to, to sin anymore. Uh, now we are slaves of righteousness, servants of the Most High. We should talk a lot about imputation. That God has uh, put our sin on Christ and imputed his righteousness to us. Right? That's how God can look at us and he can smile on it. Smile at us, right? Let the Lord's face shine on you. Like he's pleased in us. We, those things need to come up. You have to preach the cross, but you also have to preach Matthew 16 and all that follows from it, which is what happens in the rest of 1 Corinthians. I mean, in 1 Corinthians, we get all sorts of teaching on how to do church discipline. How, again, about don't sue your brother. And you get uh, a whole uh, a bunch of stuff that isn't just the atonement, but it flows from that. Now, um, so yeah, we, we are always tying things back to Jesus. And there is a temptation to preach sermons that are four points on this or five points on that, right? And uh, that is a temptation I find myself drawn towards uh, because in a lot of churches, you get theoretical preaching never with practical stuff. That's why I love Proverbs. I love James. I kind of just want to know what to do, like what are the steps to take. Uh, but if it's not centered in the gospel, if it's not by the power uh, of, of the gospel in our life, uh, then all that teaching leads to nothing. It leads to frustration. And, uh, and that's what you get in a lot of churches that are just telling you how to have a better life. Right? The better life starts with humility that comes from kneeling at the cross. And that's why it has to be centered. And that's what uh, Paul says. Look, this is where you're going to hear. You're gonna, I'm not going to bow down to your desire to hear these TED Talk-like sermons. You're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel uh, that humbles you. He goes on, he says, verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I don't think Paul is always like that. Right? Some people think this is like Paul is like a, like a guy that's just jumping all the time and really scared. If you, if you read uh, through Acts and, and, and his description, he's very bold. Right? He stands before Nero. And, and uh, God, God strengthens him, of course. And there's some different uh, theories on why. He was like this, that he was sick, or Calvin actually says because he was under persecution and uh, he was very nervous uh, at times because uh, Paul has a frame just like ours. He's made of dust and there's weakness and it it can be scary to come up and say things uh, that you know people are going to hate, especially in a day where they would drag you outside of a town sometimes and stone you, as they did uh, Paul. Uh, But the reason he brings it up again is just to say, look, when I was with you, I, I was weak, I was scared, and I was trembling. But the word I preached, look what it did. I mean, that's his confidence. Like, don't look at me. You know, I'm a vessel, a broken vessel uh, with all sorts of weakness. But when I'm preaching the gospel, when I'm preaching God's word, things happen. That's why in verse 4, he says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Now, is Paul persuasive? Pretty persuasive to Agrippa, right? So it's not that our sermons 
uh, shouldn't be persuasive. It's not when we are arguing and showing Scripture to our friends that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be persuasive. We should. But we shouldn't persuade them using uh, human wisdom. And in the charismatic church where I became a Christian, I remember they'd say things like, if you want more of God, come up front and we'll lay hands on you. Now, if I don't come up front, what does that mean? It means I don't want more of God, right? So then everyone starts to come up front, and the rebel in my heart, I just would sit, you know. And then, of course, they'd come, what's wrong, Michael? What's wrong? Why aren't you coming up to get more of Jesus? Like, can we pray for you? And then all the youth group kids would surround me and touch me, like all their hands are over me. And, and so next time, next time I went up, I went up. And I remember I went up, they, they would push it, and they would do this thing called slaying in the spirit. You guys know what this is? Right. Okay. So like they lay hands on you and uh, and, and then the spirit overwhelms you and you fall down and like shake and stuff. Um, now, the way they do it, it's really simple. You put your feet together and you put like your hands up like this. Right. Now, if you do this tonight, do it after a sermon. I guarantee in 60 seconds, you'll start to do this. It's because your center of gravity has come up. Right. And then they'll come and they'll push on your head. I said, all this like speaking in tongue stuff. And then everyone falls over. And I don't know what it's supposed to accomplish. You just lay down there, and they, they'll put a blanket over you, you know. Like, and, uh, but I never, I never got slain in the spirit because it's not real. Um, that's, but they, I remember uh, this, this Korean missionary came and blew in my face. <sighs> Receive the word of God. <sighs> and uh, I remember, uh, remember the pastor of that church. I don't know why he told me this. He said, if someone ever does something you're not comfortable with, do it back to them. So I went, <laughs> flew back in his face, and he, he kept going. But they would pressure you. They would use, and, and you do, like, uh, you do get converts. Because uh, that church, when I was in that Lawrenceburg, Indiana, a very small town, uh, lots of people were coming from my school to that because it was very emotional. The music was powerful. You'd go home with sweat down to your sides. And I remember, uh, I remember crying there. I never cried. Uh, but they, they got me all revved up, and I cried because I realized how bad I'd been towards my mother. I was, I mean, I was a bad teenager. Um, and they got me crying. So they would, they would get to people for a time. But that church is almost dead, and I'm still friends with those people from high school, and none of them are Christians. And it's because you cannot produce, uh, you cannot produce the righteousness of God using fleshly methods. Go to New York. New York's got... Latter-day Saints came out of there. Jehovah Witness. Charles Finney was up there destroying everything. It's called the Burnover District. Now, you go to New York, you see what happens when the methods of men are applied to an area for a century. It's dead. It's spiritually dead. So he says he, he wants them to know, it's not me. It's my message. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. People always ask me how I got saved when I, I used to do all these apologetic things. Like, what, what was it that pushed you over? Right? What argument was it? Theological argument. Was it this? What evidence? And honestly, it was just a guy that preached the most simple gospel message I've ever heard. You're a sinner. Uh, Jesus died on the cross for you. You need to repent or you're going to die and go to hell. That was basically it. And then the Holy Spirit it was working in his word and saved me. That is how powerful God's word is. We always think we've got to talk people into Christianity. Convince them. 
again, it's not that you can't lay out arguments, but it's the, it's the word of God will change people. It is powerful. A church that is alive is a church that is always talking about God's word, speaking God's word to each other, and praising God when his word is preached faithfully from the pulpit. That's a church that's alive. That's a church that won't be a burnover district. That's good soil where you'll grow up in. And that's what he's saying. Uh, the ministry you saw wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit and power. There is power in God's word. Now, why does he want to emphasize all this? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. What you win people with is often what you win them to. And uh, when you pressure people into uh, being saved, uh, using manipulative tactics, uh, that will only sustain so long. And I, I recall this one church vineyard, the big vineyard in Cincinnati. Uh, they, they got another mega church they were competing with, so they had to up their game. And they would uh, have these really crazy sermon illustrations. And I, I would go there every once in a while with some friends, and one Sunday they had this train come out, like a train, like the pastor's on a train, comes out on the, uh, on the uh, stage. And it was like some part of his sermon. And uh, my friend Penny was just blown away by it. Wasn't that? Have you ever, have you ever been to a church like that? Have you ever seen anything like that? No, no, I haven't, actually. That's a new one for me. Uh, and I was in some crazy churches. And, and I was like, now, uh, now Penny, what was, what, was the chur- what was the train about? What was the illustration of? And she went, don't remember (laughs) and so every week they had to up their game because the other church brought sand in they brought sand and they put it in the whole sanctuary and this is huge church and it was uh i think it was talking about abraham right how your children be like the grains of sand and so there's just sand everywhere so i said it was i i talked about it as dancing bears this is my paradigm for understanding mega churches First, you have to get a bear to dance, which is impressive, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a bear dance. I have on YouTube. It's impressive. But then you've got to get the bear to, like, ride a motorcycle because, uh, you know, a dancing bear is only cool for so long. And then he's got to, like, juggle while he rides a motorcycle or whatever. And that is really what you have in these churches. They're always trying to keep people entertained and keep their attention with something other than God's word. If your attention can't be kept by God's word, you can't be kept. Or you shouldn't be kept. You just have to uh, believe the parable of the sowers. You, you throw out the word, and then and the Lord gives the growth. It's not on you to convert people. That was my blessing when I became a Calvinist. People think that, make you, that makes you not want to preach the gospel. Very much the opposite. Because suddenly you have this confidence. It's like, oh, God will do it. I just have to deliver the mail, right? God will work through it. I don't know what he has for them according to his eternal purpose, but I know he will work through the word I'm about to preach to them. And so he's saying, don't rest on the wisdom of men. Now, you are at some place in your life right now. I guarantee you are and I am. You need to ask God, root that out of me. Help me trust in your word. You know, help me have a biblical worldview conforming more to your word. And a lot of times, people come to church not to change. 
That's why they want sermons only about atonement or only about justification by faith because they really don't want to change. And they're like, okay, I can, I can dig that. I can hear that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Uh, but as the word of God is faithfully applied, you're going to find out that you are a child of sin. You are worldly and God is changing you. I like that some, look, I'm on staff here. You guys pay me. And I sit in the, in, in the pew and hear Andrew preach, who I spent a lot of time with throughout the week, and still squirm. I'm not comfortable through all sermons. Sometimes I've, I, I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe don't, that, don't put it that bluntly. I, I want you to know that God is working in me, too. That you squirm is good. That you're uncomfortable is good. It is God uh, removing the wisdom of man, false foundations from your life, the sand that won't hold you when the storms come, and replacing it with rock, with rock of God's word, making you stronger. The power of God. So your faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Don't need a, you don't need to find the perfect C.S. Lewis book for your wayward child, for your non-Christian friend. You need to give them the gospel. Have you? And will God work through those books? In so much that his words contain in it. In so much that his truth is contained in it. But I, I have this friend and they're not walking with the Lord. What should I do? What book should I send them? I hear that all the time. And I'm okay with you giving them books. I do it. Just make sure that, um, that it's not that you're trying. Oh, C.S. Lewis will do it. <laughs> C.S. Lewis won't do it. I don't even know if he was converted. Anyway, um, you need to give them the word, the word of God. Read his Psalms commentary. Uh, you need to give them the word of God. Have you shared it with them? And I, I have non-Christian family members, and they call me. And nowadays, I, I just like, hey, let me read you something. I just read to them from Scripture. And they, they listen politely. I don't know if you'll have polite siblings. I didn't always have polite siblings when it came to reading God's word. But it's, it's really changing the nature of our conversation. Um, because now it's not that I'm smarter than them, though I am. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's not that. It's that God plucked me out of the miry pit through his, the preaching of his gospel. Don't, don't put your faith in men. Don't ask your preachers to do TED Talks. And when you see... When you see TED Talk preaching, hate it, revile it. Pray that God would strengthen men to build churches on the foundation of his word. Build your family on the foundation of his word. Tonight I had one string to pluck, and that's the one I wanted to pluck. I wanted to commend to you the power of God's word in your life. Are you reading it? Are you reading it? Thomas, where's my son? Hudson, are you reading it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do I have an 11 year old to three? <laughs> no. <laughs> do you do devotions? When your wife is struggling, husbands, do you take them to Isaiah 40 and say, We all get tired? We all get tired. But those who trust in the Lord will have like wings like eagles, right? Uh, when people are looking for wisdom, are you taking them to God's word? This is, this is the shame of Jordan Peterson. Young men don't know how to be men. And they're buying 12, 12 rules from Jordan Peterson. Scripture is better. It's better. 
Are we giving them God's word? Be very practical. Don't be high-minded. Love Christ, though he was crucified, and it demonstrates how wicked you are, how terrible you are, and how gracious God is. Spurgeon says, So great was Paul's sense of weakness and fear, so profound his lack of trust in himself, that he quaked, he trembled. Those are the secrets of strength in all preaching. That's also the secret of strength in all Christians, is that you know you don't have power in yourself, but we serve a mighty king, mighty king. And he's come to take names. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, your word is good. It is a hammer that's broke us up. It's a fire which has refined us. It's a sword which has revealed our motivations and driven us to you in repentance. By your word, we confess that you are good, and by your word, we have confidence that we've been redeemed. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that it is you that saved us, not ourselves, and that we would preach that same gospel to all those you sent in our way. We thank you for this, God. Keep this church pure. Keep this church founded on your word and nothing else. In your son's holy name, amen.